This is Jim Fleming. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Stuart Heights or more about our class, or if you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can do so at teachings.jim314.com. Enjoy the lesson. Well, the last time I spoke, I got to wear my Tennessee orange tie because Tennessee had beaten Georgia, and I thought about doing the same today. But since Vanderbilt is our Sunday school teacher's team, I'll be the the better person, and I, I won't rub it in. Both my teams won yesterday, Tennessee and Memphis. They beat up, uh, Memphis beat up on some Methodist boys down there in Texas, and we were glad, glad of that. I will say this, and then we'll move on from football, but I want you to remember this. Tennessee lost four games all year long, all of them in under a touchdown. Now, if you lose a football game by 20 points, it's called a loss. You know what you call a loss if you lose with under a touchdown? A loss. <laughs> a loss is a loss. Now, I want you to remember that, and I'll come back to it. And if you think I can't tie in a football metaphor to a sermon, you weren't here the last time I tied Britney Spears into it. So football metaphor is not going to be anything for me, promise you. Promise you that. Uh, today I'm going to do uh, what I like to call uh, a drive-by uh, sermon uh, or lesson because Jim's been teaching and, and asked me to fill in and I'm just driving by here and what we're going to do is I'm going to skim the surface uh, of this text uh, but it's not going to be uh, uh, just a skim, it, it'll be contextual when I, when I teach, uh, just like Jim I like to go verse by verse and uh, so we're going to do it in an exegetical matter. The last time I was here, but we're going to be in 2 Timothy, by the way, if you want to start finding that. It's on your notes there. <clears throat> the last time I was here, I spoke on uh, John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, foretold of Christ coming. Prepare the way. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jim went into, after the last few weeks, uh, after I taught, Jim went through Grudem's systematic theology on the doctrine of of Christ, on Christology, the, the, the uh, study of Christ's life and His ministry. Uh, we know, going back over that, we know a few things there. Quick recap, we know the virgin birth and the importance of that. Matthew 1, uh, Luke 1, uh, that Jesus had a human body. Uh, all of Luke chapter 2 kind of discusses that. We know that he had uh, physical needs. We know in John 19, 28 that he was thirsty. Uh, we know in Matthew 4 that after 40 days of fasting, he was weak and that he was hungry. So he, he had a physical, physical body. Uh, Luke chapter 24, we know uh, the resurrection was physical. It was a physical body, physical resurrection. One of the most important aspects of the church is a physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20, uh, John chapter 21. And then the ascension, John chapter, uh, uh, Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. The ascension, a, a human body, the human body of Christ ascended into heaven. The ascension, one of the least taught doctrines and actions of Christ in the church is the ascension. But um, without the resurrection, the crucifixion uh, was, 
was useless, ladies and gentlemen. And without the ascension, the resurrection was meaningless. So that's pretty good. I should have probably wrote that down. But, <laughs> but that, that is the truth. Without the ascension, the resurrection uh, was null and void. We believe that, and the Word of God teaches that Christ physically ascended into heaven. He's not hiding somewhere, ladies and gentlemen. He is on the throne of God in the presence of the Father, seated at the right hand of God the Father, completed work. So we believe that, and we studied the physical attributes of Christ. Also, I'll just say this moving on, that the Word of God uses theos, to describe Christ, because not only do we study that He is physical body, we studied that what He said about Himself, He called Himself God. Some people today say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, they're not reading the book that I'm reading. Uh, they, now, this page right here, ripped long ago when I was studying this text years ago, it's not because I didn't like it. I think some people come across a piece of Scripture and they don't like it, and so they rip it out. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ claimed to be God. Not only did He claim to be God, people around Him claimed to be God. Um, the New Testament's full of that. Romans chapter 9, Titus chapter 2, Hebrews 1.8, 2 Peter 1.1. Christ is claimed to be God. Use the same word that they would use for God. John chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus used the same words there that Moses had used when he wrote the book of Exodus in uh, Exodus 3. So I just want you to understand that that's important. As Jim has went through and studied the, the doctrine of Christ, and we've looked at the physical attributes of Christ, and we've looked at what Christ's claims are. He is the Son of God. He is God. I want you to understand that because that's important in our eternal perspective. Now, here's that football analogy I used. A football loss is a loss, right? Doesn't matter if you lose by a point. Doesn't matter if you lose by 20 points. It goes down as a loss. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a lot of people that are sinners that know that are knowers of Jesus. They're a sinner that they, but yet they are a knower of Jesus. And we need to transition from that to become a sinner who is a believer in Jesus. And there's a world of difference. There's an eternal significance. So we've studied the doctrine. I want you to know that you know still less than every angel that rebelled against God knew. You know as much, but you still are significantly less knowledgeable on the glory of God from those who are around the glory of God who have been to the throne room and yet still rebelled against Him. So it's important that we understand we have to transition from being a knower of Jesus to a believer of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. Look at Paul as he's writing in 2 Timothy. One of the last letters that we have here of Paul in the latter part of his ministry, and he is soon to be a martyr. And he realizes that many times before he should have been a martyr. Probably did die and was resurrected. But here he's writing to, second Tim, uh, to Timothy in the second letter in chapter 1 verse 12. It says this, For this reason I also suffered these things, but I am not ashamed 
For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. So I'm going to speak today on a sure knowledge. Sure knowledge. You ever had an old Sunday school teacher? I had, a, I had an old Sunday school teacher when I was a little boy back in West Memphis. Her name was Hazel Van Cleve. If your name is Hazel Van Cleve, you're an old person. You were born old. You've always been old. That is an old person's name. But Miss Hazel, man, she, she believed the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that she came over with Noah. I won't use that kind of a pun. Pretty sure she taught five apostles at Bethlehem Elementary. But still, she was an old lady. But she believed the Word of God. She, was, and she wanted us, her little Sunday school class, to believe the Word of God. And it was a sure knowledge that she had. Paul says, I know it whom I have believed. So what we're going to do today is we're going to break that one sentence and this whole verse down. I know whom I have believed. And we're going to go word by word. Now we're going to separate that phrase into two pieces. Whom being the center part. So we're going to have, I know on this side of the whom, whom I have believed. I have believed on this side. We're going to separate those two things. All right, now, like Jim, when I teach, I I normally go verse by verse, and I go phrase by phrase in the verse, and today I'm going to go word by word. So it's not that I've got like a three-point outline. (laughs) But um, I I like to say this, I'm teaching pointless, but I hope it's not pointless teaching. So we're going to go word by word, all right? So starting with I. I, Paul. Paul speaking here. Paul speaking on the front side of Jesus. And we have to look at who Paul is here when he was was Saul, the the persecutor of, of the church. On that side of his Damascus Road experience. That's us. On that side of the whom, uh, not on the good side of the cross, not on the good side of the finished work of Christ. Uh, We are enemies at that time of God. Enemies of God. You may not think of yourself as being an enemy of God before salvation or before you become a believer. But you are an enemy of God. Paul writes there in Ephesians 2. And I encourage you, just go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2 because we're going to study some there today as well. Written also by Paul. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. You hear that? That's the Baptist preacher's fan right there. Those little, little word pages flipping. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, we, Paul's saying we, we the church, all believers, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So what he's saying is everything we did, we did indulging the desires of the flesh. And I put it like this. This is something I came up with. Uh, I'm going to follow it up by a Spurgeon quote, which is far better. I say it like this. Every good act, every good act in the eyes of the world 
are drenched in sin and despised by God. You understand that you, we, there's a lot of good people. A lot of good people in this world that are not Christians, that are atheists. And they're charitable and they do incredible things. But in the eyes of God, those actions are still rebellious. Ladies and gentlemen, if God found favor in the actions of sin, He wouldn't be holy. You understand? Those good actions. Now, the evangelical church teaches that, that um, in the Reformation, teaches of total depravity. And I just want to say this. Total depravity is not utter depravity. What I mean by that, and what the Reformers were meaning, you're dead in your sins. And you can't save yourself. But you can be worse than you are even now. We're not going into an abortion clinic and killing people. We're here on Sunday school on Sunday morning learning the Word of God. You can do actions that are worse. But no matter the best of your actions are still in sin. Sin. Needing to be covered by the grace of God. Spurgeon wrote it this way. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are far worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> so if you hear, hey, let me tell you about George Jackson. I'm going to tell you something. It's probably true. In fact, it's probably worse than the rumors that you're hearing. Somebody says something bad about me. And somebody says something bad about you, believe it or not, you're even worse in the eyes of God than that. Now that's hard for us to believe because you say, hey, listen, I pay my taxes. I ain't that bad of a guy. I exceed the speed limit by five miles an hour every now and then, but hey, I'm not too bad. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not speaking of worldly actions. You were born a sinner in need of a Savior. God is saying in His Word here, and Paul is saying, you are indulging the desires of the flesh. I didn't say it. A preacher didn't say it. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said it. I'm thankful, though, that my salvation is not left to a church vote. <laughs> I'm thankful that my salvation isn't left to a popularity contest between, between believers. Um, yes, I'm far worse than what I even know in the eyes of God. But I'm thankful God has provided, made provision for me. Second word, no. And y'all are listening way too slow, so we're going to pick it up. <laughs> no. I know. Now, no is a word of certainty. And there's two knowledges here. First, the knowledge of sin. And that knowledge is revealed to all. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we know we're sinners. That knowledge is revealed to us. And the second knowledge is the knowledge of salvation. The two sweetest words in Scripture we find in Ephesians 2. But God. Now how can knowledge of a person that's dead in sin be revealed to them and lead them to salvation? 
but God. That's how. But God. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Not by the amount of money you gave to the Salvation Army at Christmas time. Not by people being worse than you are. But by the grace of God, Paul writes, you have been saved. Three things in this know. We know for certainty from Paul's writings. One, we are sinners. Ephesians 2. Secondly, we know we are sinners. Not only we are sinners, we know we are sinners. No man can stand before God at the judgment and say, I didn't know. I was innocent. I was ignorant of that fact. Ladies and gentlemen, the Word of God says we all know we are sinners. And we have throughout the world a different knowledge of the revelation of the Word of God. I mean, we have here in this room physical Bibles and we have Bible apps. We have it printed on pieces of paper and there are some places the Word of God isn't there at all. But the revelation of God is there. In nature, Paul writes, we all know we are sinners. Thankfully, Ephesians 2 comes in. And that third knowledge, God saves sinners. God saving sinners brings us to the middle of the, the word, the verse, the word whom. Of course, the whom here is Jesus. Ephesians 2, 5 says He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So how did God accomplish this? Jesus became my judgment. He became my judgment. Romans 8.32, one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Romans 8.32 says this, Paul writes, He, now that He hears God, did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. God didn't spare the wrath of God. Hey, listen. When Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't shocked. I want you to think, I don't want you to think that God's sitting there in heaven and in the Trinity's meeting, they're going, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? How are we going to do this? How are we going to redeem fallen man? Ladies and gentlemen, the cross was in the plan of God before the foundation of the world was ever laid. <laughs> Paul says, before the foundation of the world, you were a sinner. And God had made a provision. Salvation could come knock on your door of your heart. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So we're going back to what Jim's been teaching on Christology and that God came down in the form of Jesus Christ His Son and He became a man. 
He took upon this flesh. He became our judgment. Now, I'm not, I'm not that old of a person, but my sin is old. My sin was there 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem when my Savior was crucified. And I'm thankful that 2,000 years later, there's not another sacrifice needed. And 2,000 years from now, there will still not be another sacrifice needed. For God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. Jesus took my sin and my judgment, and He became, He took it, and then He became my sin, and He took my judgment and became that judgment. Jesus also became my resurrection. Became my resurrection. Romans 8.11 He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So not only does the word whom separate this phrase, it separates our eternity. We go from an eternity of death as sinners to an eternity of life as saints. From an eternity separated from God's goodness to an eternity filled with His goodness. In me, God chose a great sinner, but He also chose a great Savior. A Savior whose work will last an eternity. So that leads us to the second I in this phrase. I, again Paul, speaks of himself and again us. This I is on the right side of the whom. It's on the finished work of Christ on that side. So I want you to please, 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 please keep in mind that eternity does not begin at your death. Eternity begins and is now. It is now. Death is a transition, yes. Uh, So is puberty. Ladies and gentlemen, we all have transitions in our lives. But you are in eternity. You are in eternity now. And you are a child of God now. You stand before God righteous now because of the work of Christ. Right now. You have an eternal reward right now. Not waiting for you some far off distant future. It's right now. You are a child of God now. The Spirit of God indwells in you now. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 through 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So on this side of the whom, we have every spiritual blessing. We have it in heavenly places and we have it in Christ Jesus. Eternity is now. I want you to realize this. Our relationship with God 
is as sure as the relationship that God the Son has with God the Father. We are cemented because of their relationship. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you ever desire to share the, fle- uh, the gospel with somebody, I encourage you to remember that verse. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood we have forgiveness of our sins. Leads us to the word have. This word is a possession word. Even today, <clears throat> the word have means I have something. I possess it. If the, ever the believer could rejoice and, and brag, and well not brag, but rejoice and celebrate, celebrate in a possession of something, it's the possession of salvation. We possess salvation. Paul isn't coming across as someone in doubt. He knows he has Christ. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to His kind intention of His will, intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The Beloved being Jesus. So adoption, Paul uses the word adoption here. We've been officially adopted by God through Christ's finished work on the cross. And for what reason have we been adopted? To save us. Yeah, that happened, but that's not why we were adopted. Well, to make us right before God. Well, that happens, yes, but that's not why we were adopted. Paul writes very clearly here, the intention of His will, in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Salvation, friends, is for God's glory and for our good. Now, that, is not, that phrase is not original with me. It's been repeated many, many times in the church, but it's one that bears repeating again. Salvation is for God's glory and for our good. Understand this, we have God. But most importantly, God has us. Then we come to the word believed. Now we have something, we possess something. But have you ever been sure of something? Paul writes that he believes in Jesus. Now what a statement. Paul here, the the guy who killed Christians, right? I mean, this guy was going around for years denying Christ and going around killing Christians. And he says on this side of whom, yeah, that was me on that first eye, but this eye, the one I'm talking about now, I'm not a persecutor. I'm a believer. This I, this Paul, this Paul, this I believes. He has come to the saving knowledge and belief that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. Perhaps you're here today, and we have all been here, 
in this moment that you are a knower of Jesus and yet you've simply not come to transition to a believer of Jesus. There's not a believer that has never been a knower. But there are many knowers who are not believers. Are you tracking me? We are all knowers. Some of us are knowers longer than others. Some of us are introduced to the gospel and receive it immediately. Some of us harden our hearts for years until the Spirit of God awakens us and we are saved to that saving knowledge. But we are all knowers. But not all knowers are believers. Many people will be very knowledgeable of the Word of God and yet reject that Jesus is the Son of God. Think of the Pharisees. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now have you ever needed assurance? Paul says he believes this. Have you ever needed assurance in this? Ever needed encouragement? I can't help but think, when I think of belief, I can't help but think of John, the beloved, writing the book of Revelation, On the Isle of Patmos, John who has seen the resurrection, but he has seen his Savior crucified and was there. Saw the resurrection, saw the ascension. Jesus leaves, says, I'll come again. Now John's an old man and he has seen seen the apostles come and go. He's been reading the reports doubting Thomas who no longer was a doubter and was stretched upon a bed feet tied one end hands tied the other and they wrenched him until he was literally torn apart because he would not deny the gospel how could he after he touched the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ seen the scars he's seen Peter crucified upside down he knows of Paul's death and here John is an old man in Revelation, you think he ever needed some encouragement? And he writes this in Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked up, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what, you, what must take place after these things. This is, listen to this. Listen to this sweet, these sweet words that Jesus gives to John in his latter years of life on this earth. John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So John had seen all of these things happen to the church, all the, the martyrdom and the persecution. In his latter years, John looks up and he says, I saw the throne in heaven and there was one sitting upon it. God is telling John and John is telling us God has not abdicated. God's not been defeated. doesn't matter that the great saints have been persecuted. 
God is still on His throne. There is one sitting on the throne. That is a, that is a belief that we can own. A belief that is bedrock to the Christian spiritual, the Christian spiritual walk. You understand that an attack on an attack on the inerrancy of Scripture or an attack that we see on the resurrection of Christ or on some foundational doctrine, maybe the virgin birth, those things, yes, they're attacks on church doctrine, but they're an attack on your belief. Because belief is the bedrock of the Christian spiritual life. We believe that the throne of God is occupied. That He's not been defeated. We can believe that. We can own that. We can be secure in that. So in closing, I'll say this. <laughs> I like to say that life is, is like staying at a fancy hotel or a fancy resort for free. Now, I know it's going to end sometime, but I don't want to check out too soon. But there'll be a day, ladies and gentlemen, that I do check out. There'll be a day that you check out. John Newton's last words, and I paraphrased them earlier and wasn't even thinking about it when I was preparing the lesson, but then I came to this and I wanted to add it. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, his last words in, toward the end of his life, he says, Although my memory's fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. That is a belief to live by. And it is a belief to have when you're taking your last breath. That man died in peace. I can tell you that by that phrase alone. I can tell you that man died peace knowing that God was on His throne and that when He transitioned from this world, He would be in the presence of Almighty God. Before the foundation of the world, there was God on His throne. And when Jesus took up the sin, He who knew no sin took upon sin, became sin Himself, God was still on His throne. And, and you say today, we read the news and we hear about the refugees and we see what's going on in Turkey and we see the Middle East and we say, what's going to happen? What are we going to do this presidential election and what's going to happen to America? Hey, God's on His throne. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need America, but America really does need God. <laughs> he, he, was, he was running the show long before we were even thought of. Ladies and gentlemen, God's on His throne. Christian, we say it all the time, we don't put our faith in the things of this world, and yet we worry about the things of this world. Now, you know that's true. You know that's true. Don't put your faith in a country. Don't put your faith in a politician. Don't put your faith in a doctor or a stockbroker or a preacher. Put your faith in God, the Word of God, the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. Put your things and hopes above. Put your faith in the assurance that God is on His throne and yet you are in His sovereign grip. Paul writes, when you leave here and as we finish studying the doctrines of Christ, the doctrine of Christ and who He was and His claims, 
I hope you can say like Paul, I know in whom I have believed. In your middle of your tables there, you'll see our prayer request and our attendance sheet. This week, we have uh, Amy having surgery. And if you would go on Facebook, think there's already a meal thing set up there. We can plan to take meals to them. Alicia and I are so thankful for y'all. y'all. Y'all did that for us, and we appreciate that. As Wesley came along, he's so demanding. But, <laughs> but uh, Alicia had years of practice. She'd been married to me, so, you know, she, <laughs> she knows how to be, handle a, ma- a demanding person. But um, if you would, we're going to sign up as well, and I encourage y'all to do that so that we can love on our our brother and sister as they go through this week and the coming weeks after the surgery. Thank you for coming out. Pray that you would have a good week this week and share the love of Christ as He has shared it with you.